Hello and welcome to Series 4, Episode 8 already of Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession. My name's Jamie Gordon and here is Ginny Carlin and this week we're going all the way back to July. A particularly rainy weekend. Oh, the weather was absolutely pants, but what a fantastic weekend. Jamie, we're off back to Riyadh. Oh, I've really been looking forward to this. And yeah, the weather was rubbish and I couldn't be there. I was gutted about that. But um, you've just picked up some fantastic guests, which we're going to enjoy in a few minutes' time. And do you know what, Jenny? Over the last sort of three or four weeks, twice in fact, in the last month, I've been staying somewhere rather special. Any guesses? Mm, I'm guessing it's got a bit of an aviation theme. I'm hoping so anyway. But are you going to make me green with envy? Um, a little bit, because um, I was staying at the end of the airstrip at Coningsby, RAF Coningsby. Because there's a place called Tattersall Lakes, which is a big sort of caravan park. Um, it, it's one of those huge areas in Lincolnshire where you can go and hire a van and sit and play on the water all day. It just happens to be right at the end of the uh, of the runway at Collingsby. And I was there's nothing happened on the Friday when we went, obviously, because it was you know they knock off at lunchtime, but um, <laughs> allegedly. But uh, on on Monday morning, absolutely delighted to be seeing typhoons just screaming over the top of my head. It was fantastic. Amazing. I was just thinking, I bet there's not many things nicer in life than sort of sitting out, little, you know, cup of tea or whatever you drink in your hand, a lovely balmy day, and suddenly you hear the sound of the Merlins of the Lancaster from the Battle of Britain Memorial flight go over. That must be something so special. And yeah, I, we met some really nice people because we actually ended up going to the observation area and um, got a few waves from some of the air crew coming back in from their sorties. And there were two or three people, really nice guys, who clearly just love going to watch the jets. I mean, we need to give a shout out to these people because they are kind of the lifeblood of, of our aviation community, really. Um, on Facebook, I know that I'm a member of quite a few clubs of uh, like the um, RAF Coningsby spotters and this for Lake and Heath and, and Fairford. And I know that when the uh, B-52s landed at Fairford, I went down because I was working at Bryce Norton. The place was full. Everybody was so, just so happy to be there. It was like, it was like, I mean, Woodstock or Glastonbury, you know. <laughs> it was like, everybody was like in, in that kind of mood uh, just helping each other giving each other information stuff it's just really nice so a massive shout out to them um, because it's a really great community isn't it absolutely and so knowledgeable as well um right i think it's high time we went back in time to the summer okay so let's get to Riyadh. fantastic weekend the weather was pretty bad. It rained most of both days, but it didn't dampen anybody's enthusiasm, certainly not mine. It was really mad because I actually wasn't very well that weekend, but I didn't care, Jamie. There were planes and there were people to talk to about planes. First off, the B-52. Now, it made me feel a little bit strange in my stomach to be stood right next to something so big with so much history that potentially would have, could have taken that big old nuclear load to where it needed to be. At one point, I was stood there next to, just leaning on the tyre. Look round. I'm like, had that moment of realisation. I am leaning on a B-52 tyre. It is taller than me. So anyway, without further ado, listen to this. I'm Captain Mike Brady. I'm uh, with the 20th Bomb Squadron out of Barksdale, Louisiana. Brought the B-52, one of the B-52Hs over here for Riyadh. Now, can I just tell you that... As an aviation geek, this is possibly the best day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> 
standing so close to this aircraft. You've got a massive queue of people waiting to have a look inside. Is this the response that you always get? It's always a fan favorite, but this is my first time uh, at a military air show, let alone Riyadh, so the, the privilege, it's an absolute honor. The crowd has been nothing but super appreciative and exciting. I've been telling people, as B-52 aircrew, we're aircrew, but also have to be part historian for just bringing something so historic over. Uh, let's talk about that history. I, I mean, how old is this aircraft? So the one we have here is this aircraft 61004, uh, 1004 is how we call it. Uh, the name is El Lobo 2. 1961 was the manufacturing of this aircraft, yeah, serial number 004, and believe it or not, despite having over 22,000 aircraft hours on it, it's one of the newer B-52s, <laughs> yes. So she's an old lady, but she's one of the newer old ladies. She's, yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, uh, what's the history of this aircraft? What, what kind of missions have, has this aircraft been involved in? So the first flight of the B-52 was in 1952. The one right here is uh, an H model, B-52H. When Barksdale's bomb squadrons uh, transitioned to like Global Strike Command, we started phasing out all the previous models and then slowly adopted the B-52H. Aircraft 1004 was one of Grand Forks Air Force Base. It was one of the nuclear alert bombers. So in the community of B-52s, she's actually got a lot of fewer flight hours than some of the ones that saw combat in, say, Vietnam. Now, being a lady of more mature years, a bit like myself, uh, not quite that old though, Will, um, then do you find that things go wrong? Uh, is she quite temperamental? Are you trying to fix things quite a bit? Our maintainers are some of the best. They they get their money's worth and our technical orders, it's, it's, a, it's a tome. The beauty of having such an old plane is that there's hardly anything they haven't seen yet, but uh, it's all cables and pulleys for the most part, so it's it's usually just trying to find what uh, where it is in the jet is the big problem, but more than that, uh, they get her running and they'll keep her flying. Do you know, this is one of the things I find with older aircraft is that the people that fly them and maintain them all say the same thing. Somebody told me uh, that their aircraft from the 1950s was a gentleman's aerial carriage of the <laughs> highest order, which I thought was brilliant. And things do go wrong, but I suppose it's quite easy to, to fix, really. Well, there's a saying in the B-52 community, if you ever had to lose an engine, you're, you're stuck with the dreaded seven-engine approach or six-engine approach. The beauty of such a capable aircraft is the redundancies in the systems. So be it hydraulics, electrics, or even engines, we have time to deal with issues, but yes. So tell me what it's like when you're, you're getting ready to take off. You hear that, I mean, it's a scream from the engines. It's a beautiful sound. You must never get bored of that. I still remember my first takeoff. Uh, it, it, it's truly a, it's a, it's a rehearsed event. It's very coordinated between the pilots and the navigators calling out times and predetermined speeds. But there's nothing like as a pilot grabbing eight throttles and pushing them up to the takeoff thrust. It still gets me every time. It's impressive. There's few people that can say that they've handled the, the, the eight throttles of a B-52. Now, tell me, why, why is the B-52 still flying after all these years? We, as the B-52, provide both a conventional and a nuclear capability. And in a short part, we're the visible element of the U.S. Air Force's and the United States nuclear triad. The world takes note when a B-52 takes off. It is an easier list or a shorter list to think of what ordnance we can't provide to combatant commanders into the field. So be it smart bombs, sea mines, cruise missiles, there's, we can bring a lot and stay on station uh, more than just about any other aircraft. There's just nothing else like it, is there? Absolutely not. It's unique in every way, yeah. Uh, what about a program uh, of updating just to make sure that capability is always there and, and always developing? So I'm sure you've seen in the news, Rolls-Royce has the contract for the new engines, and that's just part of a whole host of things to keep this aircraft flying to 2050. And I truly think it's going to get there. But the aircraft, especially the one we're standing right in front of, it's going to be the same aircraft. They're just going to keep her going and upgrading the capabilities along the way. 
I, I'm imagining this aircraft is a very different aircraft to the one it started out as. Yes, it's uh, the part of storing thing is this aircraft was designed uh, at a time where this was the only means of carrying nuclear uh, weapons against the Soviets. Um, and as combat and the geopolitical scene involved, it went from a high altitude bomber to doing a low level mission back to now we're in the, the world of standoff munitions. So it, uh, despite having a close air support and gravity weapon employment throughout Vietnam and the wars in the Middle East, uh, it's done just about every mission set you can think of. Now, uh, the word iconic is banded around to many, many aircraft. I use it all the time, but this is truly an iconic aircraft. Do you kind of feel the weight of that a little bit when you're on board and the, the, the people that have flown it before and the history that goes goes before? Do you feel that a little bit? I do, and I, it, I, as a bomber air crew member, it's, it's, it's a level of heritage and history that comes with it. And being here at uh, RAF Fairford as part of the Royal International Air Tattoo, it, I can't help but just feel humbled to be be here as uh, as part of a long lineage of um, both Air, Air Force and Coalition partners being here. So absolutely, it's it's an honor to be here and it's an honor to fly this. I mean, you can't just creep into an airfield with a B-52, can you? Oh no, no. The plane spotters already had pictures of us before we even left the aircraft. <laughs> before you knew you were flying. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> Captain Mike Brady there of the 20th Bomb Squadron from Barksdale, Louisiana. What strikes me about the B-52 is I know there's a kind of a plan to keep it going and keep it operational to the point where it could almost celebrate 100 years in service. And I think that is an extraordinary statistic. I know, you know, Spitfires and Hurricanes, they will probably be around for their 100th anniversary, but not in an operational sense, unlike the B-52. I'll tell you something as well, Jamie. Of all the aircraft there that weekend, there were some absolutely tremendous aircraft, some beautiful aircraft. Everybody waited for the end when the B-52 flew in. And everybody went silent. It was, it was like, it it was like a pterodactyl, <laughs> a huge pterodactyl. You know, with those wings because they almost move because they're so long. And there was one absolutely lovely bit when it came in. It got to the end of the runway. It had to kind of crab sideways back up the runway uh, because it couldn't fit. And allegedly, it broke some of the runway lights, which you know did make me giggle at the time. So on to the next one. Just some amazing fighter aircraft, Jamie at, at Riyadh. Uh, they always draw the crowd because they always look quite sexy. You know what I mean? Uh, this next one is no exception. The F-15 Strike Eagle, a beautiful aircraft. You don't think how old it is, but an absolutely splendid aircraft. And I got to speak to this lady all about it. She was a complete rock star. So I'm First Lieutenant Lindsay Curry. I fly the back seat of the F-15E Strike Eagle, so I'm a WIZO Weapon Systems Officer. And I'm here at Riyadh selling patches and having a good time. <laughs> and whereabouts are you usually based? Uh, so we are at RAF Lakenheath. Uh, it's about an hour and a half north of London. Excellent. Now, tell me about your aircraft. I mean, what a beautiful looking aircraft. What's she like to fly? She's wonderful. She's a beast. Uh, <laughs> amazing to fly. We can get going fast, pull a great amount of Gs. As sitting in the backseat flying it, I don't always know what the pilot's going to do, so I always have to be prepared for any sort of turns, any sort of Gs. It's a lot of work. It's a little stressful sometimes, but it's a lot of fun. Sitting back there, just seeing the world out of the canopy is amazing. The best way to travel, I imagine. And it, it was the F-15, an aircraft that you had wanted to fly for some time, or were you selected to fly for it? Or was there another aircraft that you wanted more? Don't speak too loudly, because she's just next to us. I have always wanted to fly the 15, at least from college. Uh, back in college, I got to meet a couple Wizzos, 15 Wizzos. And I just saw how excited they were about their job and how they were just great people. And I was like, that is what I want to do. 
So I got to what we call CISO training for Wizzos. And I was like, I want the 15. That's my number one choice. I worked hard and I got it. Fabulous. Now, the F-15, a real looker, let's be honest, absolutely beautiful. But with lots of aircraft here, we don't actually realize just how old they are and how many years they've been in service. What is next for the F-15? Uh, so currently, we're just repairing them all. They break a little bit, we repair them. We're working on upgrading like all of the radars, all of the bunch of different systems that we have in there. These jets are 229 engines, so all new engines. Uh, we have a few jets in the training course that are older engines, but we're just updating everything on these jets. I know in the next few years, it's all skeptical. I'm not sure, we're not sure where we're all going with these because they are old, but I know the Air Force is gonna buy some EXs, so we'll get some brand new jets. I don't know who's gonna fly them, but we'll have some new jets, but we're gonna fly these, these babies until they're gone. Are they quite easy to maintain though? Yes and no, depends on what breaks. So we, because our aircraft's a little older, can't, everything we do, most of everything is mechanical, so it's not connected to the computer. So like 35 has, the computer runs everything, so it's much harder if something breaks to go into the computer and try to fix it. For us, it's not the case. So like if a wire snaps, you just go replace the wire. Okay. It's not a, a terrible. So for us, a lot of the mechanical parts are pretty easy to replace and fix because our computer's not attached to all of that. And I know that you love this aircraft, if you could choose to fly back seat, or if it's just a you know a one seat aircraft, still flying or not flying, what aircraft would you like to have had a go in? Oh, that's that's a hard question. It's a good one though. I gotta think for a second. SR seventy one. That's what most people say. Oh, that would that is a good one. That is definitely a good aircraft. The SR seventy one. I don't know if I'd choose a different aircraft because this is as a backseater. This is the only fighter I got, and it's amazing. I love everything that I get to do on this aircraft. Just how involved we are with every single sort of mission set and everything that I get to do there. And we like we go fast, we can pull out of G's. We just do everything. And so there's no other aircraft that can do everything that we do, which is what why it's amazing. Not to mention I got a pilot, so I get to have a buddy that I get to talk to. So I wouldn't want to fly any of the single seaters because you're just alone. And then the bigger crews, you can't pull as many G's and you can't go as fast. So this is, this is definitely the aircraft. I don't think I'd choose a different one. First Lieutenant Lindsay Curry. Now, there's a lady who really doesn't want to be anywhere else apart from in the job that she's in. Um, having said that, I believe she had some really good news on the day that you talked to her. Yeah, literally just finished speaking to her. And Will, who was the media minder, went, oh, I believe some congratulations are in order. She just picked up that day and got a captain. Oh, fantastic. I do feel a bit sorry for Wizzos these days because they are a bit of a dying breed because it's all about single seat aircraft these days and but uh, uh, she really loves that aircraft doesn't she uh, and like i say she was just a complete rock star <laughs> absolutely brilliant i just i kind of saw her and i thought i just want to be you you know what i mean she was so amazing so on to the next one jamie oh my life so i saw this aircraft when i first got to Rio, and i was like hmm is that is that a hercules and then I had another look and I was like, it's like a Hercules, but not like a Hercules at the same time. <laughs> I got a little bit closer to it and I realised that it was the Weatherbird. Now, I, I was talking about Captain uh, Will Gomez, who was on Media Minder. I pestered him so much to get this interview and he was so good in getting it for me. These guys do such an amazing job. These are the guys that fly into the eye of the storm to get data uh, to pass on to the Met Office. They're sort of halfway between being completely cool and being complete nutters. This is Lieutenant Colonel John Jack Scarby, who is the evaluator navigator on the WC-130J, the Weatherbird 
We got interrupted by a lot of jets flying over, but we managed to get there in the end. Listen at this, Jamie. Honestly, I, I don't know if I'm jealous of this guy's job or thankful that I am got both feet on the ground. So you fly into hurricanes. Is that not the most terrifying job in the world? You know, most of the time it's not any worse. Not any worse than turbulence you might experience flying on a commercial airliner. But there's probably about 15, 20% of the year where we say you get your money's worth and it's kind of like, imagine driving through a car wash on a roller coaster. Uh, because until you get into the eye of the storm where it's very calm and quiet and... and, and uh, frankly, uh, surreal, because not a lot of people are inside the eye. We're only at about five or 10,000 feet. So in a well-defined eye, we're really at the bottom and it looks like you're in the middle of a stadium and you see the clouds tower tens of thousands of feet around you in a, in a bowl, actually. So, um, so it's pretty unique to see. I would say in my uh, previous aircraft, uh, B-52s, like most every other plane, if you see weather, we avoid it. In this case, if we're in the storm environment, we, we pretty much fly straight at it. Uh, certainly, uh, to and from the storm, we still avoid weather like any other aircraft. And, and even, I would say, in the storm environment, we, we're looking on the radar and making sure we avoid the worst part of the turbulence, uh, embedded thunderstorms, severe hail, mesocyclines, things like that, that, uh, that obviously would be uh, dangerous for us to fly to as well. But at some point, we have to get to the eye and back out. So we do have to punch through some turbulent weather. And who does your data go to? Great question. We have a, a great team in the back. We have a drop sound operator, Loadmaster, that uh, works in conjunction with our ARWO, uh, meteorologist basically, and that's what they went to school for. And they collect that data on the plane. We have sensors on the plane that collect that data, and they also drop what's called a drop sound. It's basically a device with a parachute on the end, and as it drops to the surface from the bottom of the plane, it collects data. That data is pretty basic, a wind speed, temperature, barometric pressure. Uh, obviously, we're taking our observations as well, and all that gets sent back to the National Hurricane Center. Within about 15 seconds of it being checked, the weather officer, that all squirts from our plane to a satellite and back down to the NHC of Miami. They take all that raw data that we've collected, and they that's how they build their forecast models for uh, determining in a better format as far as uh, where is it going, what what they predict the intensity might be. Uh, on average, we can make the forecast about 25 to 30% more accurate. Uh, obviously, first and foremost is to hopefully get that data back so they can get the washes and warnings out to hopefully the general public so that they heed the proper warnings from the authorities to evacuate those areas, especially next to the coast and, and frankly, even inland as well quite a bit. Um, and then obviously property, uh, giving people time to, to hopefully board up and prepare for what might be coming. Um, certainly it's not an exact science, but we hope to make that a little bit better. So I mean, we've talked about, like, I think it must be the scariest job in the world. Um, have you had any moments where you just think, oh my gosh, what am I doing? You know, there, there are moments where it can be pretty bumpy, as I, as I mentioned before. I guess the, the, the surreal moment for me you know, having been almost in the Air Force for 20 years is is when you're in the eye. It's just it's just so unique and, and it's kind of it, frankly awe-inspiring to see the power of of Mother Nature. And uh, depending on how clear it is at the bottom, sometimes you can see to the surface and you, you can just see the the sheer force of those winds and what they're doing to the surf and 
and how big those those waves are and such. So. Lieutenant Colonel John Jack Scarby there, who is the evaluator navigator on the Weatherbird, the WC-130J. And it's not a job I would put my hand up for. I mean, I can live with a bit of turbulence, but (laughs) flying into a hurricane, nah. (laughs) Well, it's like when he said it's like flying through a car wash, like really fast. (laughs) Just... Just absolutely mad. And, and his co-pilot was there, a guy called Mango. What a great name. And I said to him, has there ever been any moments where you're like, what am I doing? And he said his first flight on there, they went to the eye of the storm and the weather conditions meant that they slowed down to such a point they were about to stall, like the eye of the storm was going to stall the aircraft. And the only way out of it was to do this like crazy dive towards the water below them to kind of go down, to pick up enough speed to, to go out again. Uh, and he said, and at the end of that, I looked round at the pilot and I was like, does that happen a lot? <laughs> and the pilot was like, no, it's the first time it's happened, which made me laugh out loud. But what a great bunch of guys. Can't fault them. But it's all a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, from a flying sense, you don't fly into bad weather. You certainly don't start diving around in the middle of a hurricane and that's what they do for a living. It's incredible. So the next one, Jamie, this is a special one because I never thought I was going to get this interview. I never thought I would be featuring this aircraft at all on Mav Geeks. So I was kind of beyond myself when I got this interview. It is with a U2 pilot. Can you imagine? But I got the opportunity to learn so much more about this. Well, it's like an iconic aircraft and something so secret and so quiet. But to hear about it, it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. My name's Charles Whitehead. I'm a major in the U.S. Air Force assigned to the 99th Reconnaissance Squadron, and I'm a U-2 pilot. So we stood here next to your beautiful aircraft, an old lady of the skies, but does an amazing job still. What's she like to fly? Uh, The U-2 is absolutely unlike any other airplane that you can fly. The handling characteristics are so different between the high altitude range and the low altitude range. Um, Landing on the two-wheel tandem landing gear assortment is completely different. Uh, You really have to unlearn a lot of what you kind of know about flying uh, to master the U-2. What kind of reception do you get from, I mean, you've got a massive crowd here. What sort of reception do you get normally? Well, everyone is always interested in seeing the U-2. We always get good crowds. Even the people who aren't familiar with it, they can just tell by looking at it that that's a unique airplane. Sadly, most of the questions we get are, I didn't know those were still flying because <laughs> uh, it has been around for a while. But we are still here, still kicking, uh, doing the mission 70 years later. How long do you think the U-2 will keep flying? These airplanes have got a ton of life on them, just as far as like the actual airframe itself. So it really just comes down to the needs of the service and, uh, you know, there's only so much money to go around. So everyone's always on the, the cutting board at some point. Now, let's let's get to the good stuff. Right. <laughs> the U-2, obviously, unlike probably any other aircraft where she flies, is just mind-blowing. You must wake up every morning when you're about to fly. You've got to be excited about that. It's always exciting. Every mission is different. During flight, every single time, there's at least one, if not several moments where I just take a minute and look outside and just think, wow, I cannot believe I get to do this. Um, On a clear day at uh, operational altitudes, you can see almost 300 miles to the horizon. It's unbelievable. Let's talk about maintenance. Like you say, 70 years old. In some ways, I imagine she's quite easy to maintain, being a bit of an older aircraft. But are you on a continual program of maintaining her as well? 
Oh yeah, I mean, guys are always working on them. There's always kind of little quirks just due to age. You know, some of the airplanes just fly differently than others just because of the way they've been used over the years. I think one of the coolest things about this airplane is that, you know, there's one pilot that goes up, but if you watch a launch, there's about 20 to 25 people who are all running around, uh, checking different equipment, checking different sensors, uh, helping the pilot get integrated. The the team effort to get one of these airplanes airborne is, is really cool. And uh, our maintainers are working pretty much around the clock uh, to keep us going. I mean, obviously you'll have varying mission times, but the longer missions, you must be exhausted when you get back. It can be incredibly fatiguing, uh, especially mentally fatiguing, because uh, you always got to hold on to a little bit of energy for the landing, which is definitely the most challenging part. So we do spend a lot of time learning basically how to uh, you know, manage our fatigue best, uh, even as far as like nutrition and diet goes, so that you know, we're mentally and physically ready for the flight. Is there any time that you actually think to yourself, because obviously the, the, the parameters of what you're doing are just unlike anything else. I don't want to ask if you get scared, but it must be always on your mind what you're doing and where you are in the environment that you are as well. Yeah, so the, uh, the YouTube operates in what we call the coffin corner which is basically uh, the range that we fly, we're only a few knots above our stall speed and a few knots below our maximum sort of structural speed. So you're constantly monitoring, monitoring the airplane, making sure you're staying in the envelope. It's a, it's a full-time job. I have absolutely had some very scary moments in the U2, but the pros far outweigh the cons, and I'll keep doing this as long as they'll let me. It just must be such an amazing experience. And do you see the green light that everybody talks about between uh, above Earth? So if you mean like Aurora Borealis, yeah. uh, you can definitely see that up in the northern latitudes. Um, when we fly planes from California out to England, especially in the winter, yeah, guys can get a good view of them. I've seen St. Elmo's fire, miles of red luminescent algae in the Pacific Ocean flying from Korea to Hawaii. Like you can see some cool stuff. You see the. Uh, the Terminator line when night turns to day and you can see just a distinct line of shadow on the Earth's surface. Yeah, very, very cool experiences. Major Charles Whitehead of the 99th Reconnaissance Squadron, a U-2 pilot during the day. I mean, just it, it blows my mind to, to think where they go and what they do, much of which they can't tell us about. But just the flying experience, being that close to effectively space, just something to behold. And I'm never going to get the opportunity. How did James May from Top Gear get the opportunity to do that? I know, just amazing. I'm going to properly name drop here, but James May flew with a friend of mine who was a U2 pilot, a guy called John Cabby Cabigas. And uh, I'll just pick that one up then, shall I? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it was really funny because when I spoke to uh, Major Charles Whitehead, I was like, do you know Cabby? He was like, oh, yeah, I know Cabby. So I was, I felt like a million dollars when he said that because, uh, you know, I'd met Cabby from s some years previous. The thing that gets me about the U2, Jamie, is that they fly at 70,000 feet. If they have to eject, how long are they going to be parachuting back to Earth? And what would go through your mind the whole time? You know what I mean? That's a whole lot of darkness to be going through, isn't it? Honestly, it blows my tiny mind when I think about that because, yeah, I couldn't ever do that. But what a bunch of guys. So our final interview from Ria, I was talking about the, the sexy fighter jets. They don't come much more sexy than this. The F-35A. Oh, my life. Lots of people queuing to see this aircraft. I got to speak to a pilot. When you're up close to it, it just looks something special, you know what I mean? Captain Stephen Carter uh, from RAF Lakenheath. I'm an F-35A pilot with the 495th Fighter Squadron, the Valkyries, out of uh, Lakenheath. Well, I have to say, your aircraft is a very smart looking aircraft. What's she like to fly? Super great to fly, uh, pretty pilot friendly overall. 
uh, not too difficult in terms of uh, takeoff, landing, that kind of thing. A lot of technology on board that we have to manage that makes the actual day-to-day -day mission uh, one we have to train hard for uh, so we can be prepared. So let's just talk about the technology and flying an aircraft with that much technology. I imagine it's very, very different from, I imagine you almost have to unlearn how to fly in some ways. You do. Uh, it becomes, you become a data manager. Uh, the aircraft can basically give us more information than we can process and we become the limiting factor there as the pilot. Uh, so you got to train to be able to basically see things through your peripheral vision, hear things, uh, and kind of know what's going to happen before it happens. Uh, so that way you can predict and uh, be the best you can to serve your 4, 8, 12 ship uh, out there fighting the battle. So is this the first aircraft that you've been on or have you flown others? Uh, this is the first one I have. So I came straight out of the T-38 Talon trainer uh, and then into the F-35B course at Luke Air Force Base. So very spoiled then. <laughs> I, got I got very lucky, yes. So uh, obviously massive crowds around because the aircraft is just so striking looking, just absolutely beautiful, like something off a film, amazing. Do you always get that response when you go to places? Yeah, this jet tends to draw a crowd. Uh, it's an impressive jet and certain places it's the first time they've ever seen it. But we always get good interaction with people. People love to come out and take pictures of the jet. Uh, it's a really impressive piece of machinery that we love showing off. Tell me how, I mean, we've spoken about it being obviously very computer-led, like you say, being a data manager. Uh, it, it just must be a, a, a kind of a, a course of continual upgrades and updates all the time. Yeah, uh, we get both uh, software and hardware up updates pushed down the line. Uh, those get tested out and put into the jets. And that's one of the nice things uh, is we can keep very up-to-date and as we find bugs or problems, uh, they can be fixed a lot quicker than some older aircraft, which is very nice. So did you always think to yourself, I'm gonna fly the F-35? I mean, or was it something that sort of just happened for you? No, uh, it was definitely not uh, a dream of mine growing up. Uh, I didn't, wasn't really sure I wanted to be a fighter pilot <laughs> until, uh, until about college. And then uh, the F-35 didn't seem very realistic at the time uh, with how they were uh, how the training pipeline was going, and I just got really lucky uh, to be in the right place at the right time to have a training spot open up for me. Excellent. And if you could fly any aircraft, I mean, massively spoil, everybody would say the F-35, but if you could fly another aircraft, what would it be? Uh, another aircraft. I've always, uh, I grew up wanting to fly the A-10, so I always thought that'd be really cool. It's a, it's a completely different airframe, uh, but it has so much history, uh, incredible mission, uh, and some incredible people in the community. I was gonna say, you know, for people, um, I was talking to the guys on the B-52 yesterday and the pilot was saying that there's nothing quite like pushing the thrust forward on eight engines. You know, that's something for him that's just like, wow, I wake up every morning and I look forward to this. What is it with this aircraft for you that makes you go, oh my gosh, I've landed on my feet. I mean, I, I know you've landed on your feet, for goodness sake, just look at her. But what is it that makes you go, oh, this is, this is the life? I mean, a very similar thing. Light in the afterburner in this engine, it's one of the most powerful single engines ever produced. We have a ton of thrust, it was 44,000 pounds of thrust. So that's a pretty exhilarating. But then going out there and being with some of the best pilots in the entire world in our squadron, uh, and training uh, with NATO partners across Europe to go out there and see some of the incredible things we can do if needed. Amazing. And do you feel, uh, I mean, again, asking this to some of the, the guys that are on the older aircraft that feel like the, the legacy and the, the lineage um, of what's gone before them, but obviously this is so new. Do you feel the kind of uh, a weight on your shoulders of what's to come? You know, like you're the forerunners for this. Yeah, I mean, the, the history of the fighter pilot is one that's uh, storied. Uh, there's a lot of legends out there, especially in our platform. Uh, we're a seed platform, so the Wild Weasel mission and the legends that have come before us and risked their lives uh, to protect others. Um, so we're definitely forging our own path, especially at RAF Lakenheath. We've only been around uh, since October of 2021. Uh, so we get to kind of write our own history here, and we're really excited about that.
Captain Stephen Carter from the Valkyries from uh, RAF Lake and Heath, rounding off a wonderful look back at the not-so-glorious summer uh, but of Riyadh. What an experience that you must have had. That was fantastic. I loved every second of it, Jamie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Remember, if you'd like to write us a review, we would love you to write a review, but please make it a good one. You can do it wherever you get your podcasts. And it just means, as I say every week, that me and Jamie can keep making this podcast because we love it so much, but I think you probably knew that. And feel free to write in and tell us about your aviation experiences, what you think of the programme, anything you like. At mavgeeks at bfbs.com is the address. And next week, we're back to proper old school stuff, I think, aren't we? Oh, absolutely, Jamie. The fantastic Chris Burwell was a Harrier pilot and part of that famous club of people who left the plane a little bit earlier than intended. Admin on that must be absolutely savage. But listen, <laughs> it's been great listening to uh, to all the stories from Riyadh for this week. And we'll see you next week. Ta-ra! Ta-ra!